We just sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it is one way of viewing what we do. That song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's one way that we can consider this Lord's Suffer. Well, what's your biggest accomplishment, your richest gain? What are you most proud of? That verse says that when you see the cross, all of that is loss. All of that is contemptible. It doesn't matter. Another verse says, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ, my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. What might you boast about? What have you accomplished in life that you're proud of? What do you most like? What, what charms you most, it says. When you see the cross, it says, I'm, I'm glad to sacrifice all of those things. They count for nothing. In light of love so amazing, so divine. He said, now that's one way to view the Lord's Supper. In that song, the words I and me and mine, uh, you sing it about a dozen times. It's about you in relation to Christ and the cross. And that's necessary. That's good. He died for me. He died for you, and we ought to consider that when we come to this time of worship, we need to personalize it. But let me suggest another view, another way to look at the Lord's Supper. In a moment, we will sing a song called, Come Share the Lord. Now, that song is structured for this time of worship, but it goes beyond the personal view that we have. It speaks about us. There's no eyes and me's and minds in there. It says everyone belongs. It says no one is a stranger here. And, and I know that not everyone in here is in Christ. I know that we have some visitors and loved ones uh, who have not chosen to follow Christ and won't be partaking of the Lord's Supper. I understand all that. But those who are in Christ, there's a shared love here. And that song says, come share the Lord. He died for us. And, and then we'll sing right before the Lord's Supper, by Christ redeemed. Right before the Lord's Supper served, there are no me's and mine's and I's in this song either. By Christ redeemed. In Christ restored, we keep the supper of the Word. And we show the death of our dear Lord until He comes. One difference between public worship, the assembly, this hour, and private worship is this concept. Uh, you can worship on your own. You can stay home and worship. Uh, you can go to the woods and worship. And... It may be good for you, but nobody else knows it. 
See, when we come together like this, we show the death of our dear Lord. Every car that drives past this morning on Meridian looks at that full parking lot and thinks those people believe in Jesus. They believe he died for them. We're together showing his death. This next verse explains the emblems. It says, his body, given in our stead, is seen in this memorial bread. And as we drink, we see the blood until he comes. This verse is a strong one. Thus that dark betrayal night with the last advent we unite. By one bright chain of loving right until he come. We need to think about this a moment. We may just pass right past this part of the song because we don't think through it. An advent is the coming of the Lord. When the Lord comes, it's an advent of something. And the last advent was 2,000 years ago. He came. He came to Bethlehem. That was the advent. Now, there's another advent coming. He's coming back in the future, and that'll be another advent. But what this song says is we are uniting the betrayal night of his first coming. How are we uniting all that? It's the next phrase. He says, by one bright chain of loving right until he come. Uh, This right, this, this ritual, if you will, these emblems, this memorial, it's a chain unbroken for 2,000 years. And we join that chain. We unite with his death. This morning we do it. Every week. We do it. We join the chain. You know who we're united with? I put some chairs around the tables to be symbolic of who's here with us. You can pick your own to put in those chairs, but to me, we unite with Paul and Timothy. We unite with Aquila and Priscilla. They saw Jesus resurrected, and then they saw the bread and the the, uh, wine, and they saw his body and his blood again, and they did it every week, and today we unite with them. On down through the ages, others who have had the same experience, George Mueller, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, other men of the faith. We unite with them in this loving right. We all united because we were all baptized into his death on that dark betrayal night. Last year we honored the 39 folks who started Northside 75 years ago. You understand that every Sunday we unite with them In this loving right, the Bethels and the Hines and the Overbys and the Bill Mocks, those who started this congregation, they had the same experience every week. And those who joined them through the 75 years, 
the Claypools and the Hoytenmarks and Walt and Lewis and Ann and Marvin and the Vances and the Fords and the Harringtons and on and on. One bright chain, we join it today. Down to the last one to leave those pews for a better seat at the table, Bill Hopkins. He had this same experience, and today we unite. All of them saw in this memorial bread his body. All of them saw the blood and showed the death of our dear Lord. And so it will be until he comes. Worship is not a solo act. It's one way to look at it, and we should think that way sometimes when we join at the table, but other times we should think about who else is joining with us. We come to share the Lord. Brother Charles, come and lead us in these songs. Lead us in worship to him and to them. Our current series is... uh, Worthy worship. Last week we talked about Ascribe to the Lord. Just a four-part series, going to be very quick and I hope very meaningful. First thing we learned was Ascribe to the Lord. That comes from Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We pointed out that all life is worship. The Bible speaks, however, of a specific time of worship, an assembly, a weekly event, an assembling of the saints, and we are in that event. We are in that event now, and we're trying to make our worship worthy. We subtitled our study, It's About Him, and if that's all you remember from last week, that's fine with me. That's the point. Uh, ascribe to the Lord, not us. It's not about us. Uh, we all judge worship by all sorts of different means and our likes and dislikes and all that, but the Bible says, no, worship is about Him. He seeks worshipers. He says He inhabits worship. He is here with us. He says He is worthy of worship. It's not about us. If it's not about us, then it probably doesn't matter so much what we like (laughs) or dislike, does it? It puts it in a different perspective. Uh, If it's not so important what we like, then maybe we should find out what he likes. And that's what we talked about last week. Uh, We talked about the, the, the concept that Scripture is sufficient to regulate worship. Scripture, if we look at it, tells us what to do in worship. And we read some history there, and one phrase that may have stuck in your mind is, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. And we'll talk more about that in the last two lessons. But today, let's add to what we know about, it's about Him, and let's talk about discerning the body. Discerning the body, and our subtitle is, It's About Them. 
Let me warn you, you're going to have to think today. Well, you don't have to. I, I can't make you. Uh, but it's necessary to get this lesson, I think. Uh, let's put our thinking caps on and work through things a little differently than we probably have ever talked about them before in worship. Uh, in fact, let's look at a bad example to start. That's kind of a strange sermon technique, isn't it? Uh, to look at a bad example, but that's where we're going to start. Uh, we just read a passage from 1 Corinthians. The, the first letter to Corinth is a letter correcting bad practices. It's a letter correcting bad attitudes. It's a letter correcting bad actions. The church in Corinth was a new church. It was filled with people from all kinds of religious backgrounds, and they got messed up. They did a whole lot of things wrong. Now, Paul still called them saints. He said they were still the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he went through this book chapter by chapter by chapter and straightened things out. He said, now, you got this wrong, and here's how to do it right. So that's what the whole book is. Now, a couple of the chapters in the book are specifically about what we're talking about, worship time about the assembly of the saints, the time when they all got together. They had lots of other problems. They had marriage problems. They were suing each other in court. They, they had all kinds of problems. But two of the chapters particularly were about what they were doing in worship wrong. So if we can see that bad example, maybe that will help us understand a few things. Uh, verse 11, uh, Chapter 11, verse 17 Paul says this, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Does that shock anybody else? How would you like in the middle of our worship service for a voice to all of a sudden come from heaven and say, I can't praise you for what you're doing. Your meetings do more harm than good. Well, that's what Paul told the church in Corinth. And chapter 11 is about when they get together for the Lord's Supper. It's about that part of worship time. And he says, what you're doing there, uh, I have no praise for you. In fact, he says, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. You say that's what you're doing. But you're not doing it. You see, they broke the bread. They drank the wine. But what they had done, it was more of a common meal in those days. It was more like one of our potlucks. And I think at some point in this meal, they stopped and recognized the bread and the wine represented the body and the blood. But what they weren't doing, they weren't discerning the body. They weren't thinking about what they were doing in that time. Now, look at his main criticism, and it's not especially about that. The main criticism is, in 1121, he says, Each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. Now, this we could study for weeks on this chapter or two here and get all the history and it would mean a lot more to us. But the point is all these pagans 
had come from different backgrounds. They'd become Christians. They had all these backgrounds of feasts and orgies and parties. That's the way you did things. That's the way you did religion. And they had classes amongst them. There were rich people, very rich people, and very poor people. There were slaves. There were masters. There was the in crowd. There was the out crowd. And when they got together for their meal, their love feast, what we call the Lord's Supper today, the rich brought all sorts of stuff, and they had plenty of food and wine, and they just dove right in. They didn't give another thought to them, to the rest of the church. The poor people who maybe couldn't get there until their master let them loose at home or whatever, and maybe they didn't have anything to bring to the meal. The rich didn't care. They just went ahead. They just had their party. They just enjoyed themselves. And Paul says, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. Now, I personally think in this chapter that discerning the body has two has a double meaning. I think Paul means you've got to discern the body of the Lord. You've got to focus on what you're doing to make it the Lord's Supper. And then I think in this part, he says, you've also got to discern the body. You've got to think about the body. You've got to think about them. This isn't all just about you. Now, if you think of it that way, that's our two key points so far. That's the only thing we've learned. It's about him, and it's about them. Now, Chapter 14 is another chapter about the worship service. Now, this is not the Lord's Supper part. What they were doing in the rest of the worship that Paul was straightening out for them is some of them had miraculous gifts. All of them had gifts, and they wanted to show off. They wanted to do what they were good at to show everybody else how good they were. So when they came to worship time, the way it sounds in 1 Corinthians 14 is it was just a wild carnival almost. Somebody said, I, I've got a message. i got something. i got to say this. you got to hear this. And somebody else said, i got a revelation from the Lord. i, I got to share this with you. And somebody said, i got a song. i got to sing this song for you. You're going to love this song. And they just, they were interrupting each other. They, they weren't taking turns. It just sounded like a wild, not serious kind of worship service. And what Paul said to them was, you're building yourself up. That was his criticism in chapter 14. You're building yourself up. That's all you're doing. Look at 14.12. He says, you use your gifts to build up the church. That's what the assembly is for, part of what it's for. It's for him, of course, but it's also for them. You use your gift, whatever it is, to build up the church. You consider them. What do they need? It's not about what you want. It's not about how good you are at singing or preaching or talking or dancing or anything else. 
You think about what they need and do that. It's not about you. In fact, they turned it into such an entertainment show, such a party, that Paul laid down rules. He told them toward the end of 14, well, in 1420, he said, do everything, 14 verse 20, do, uh, 40, excuse me, do everything in a fitting and orderly way. Decent and orderly, we used to say all the time. Fitting and orderly. He said, it's not time, it's not showtime for your pleasure. What it is, is you're supposed to offer, remember this verse from last time, you're supposed to offer acceptable worship in reverence and awe to him considering them. So that's Paul's criticism of the church in Corinth. Now that we know what Corinth did wrong, let's see what if we can apply it. When this family worships, when this family gets together, let's make sure we don't make the mistakes that Paul was calling the Corinthians for. Let's consider them. Now, I made a few points here, and I hope this translates into understanding how we think about the rest of the congregation instead of just ourselves. Number one, let's think about this. Each member is different. I don't know how many we got here today, 700 somewhere. Every one of us is different. We all come from different backgrounds. We come from all kinds of different personalities where we're all different. Now, worship is not about us. I already cleared that up last week. It's not about us, but we still all come with different preferences. We don't all like the same kind of music. Some of us like faster, some of us like slower, some of us like different this or that. We don't all like the same style of preaching. In fact, that was one problem in Corinth. They had their favorite preachers. In fact, that's the first thing he got on them about. <laughs> you got divisions. You got your favorite preacher, and you'd rather hear him than the other one. We're different. We react differently emotionally. Some of you cry real easy. Just almost anything. A good commercial on TV make you cry. Yeah. And some of you wouldn't cry, you know, if your dog died. You just, you're so stoic and you're not going to cry about anything. Yeah. We're all different. Some of you are very demonstrative. Some of you are very stoic. No demonstration of emotion at all. Well, worship is an emotional event. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But it is, and we all react differently. Now, just think about the fact that we all come from different backgrounds. Not everybody was born and raised at Northside. Some of you were born and raised somewhere else, grew up in some other religious group, perhaps. Well, we've probably got folks here that were raised in the, the Pentecostal end of the spectrum. In those churches, 
uh, emotion, showing emotion, is valued. That means you're spiritual. So you're, you're trained to show it in all sorts of ways. Yeah? At the other end of the spectrum, I say an old school Catholic, if you were raised as an old school Catholic, what worship was, you came in and sat down, and some guy up on the stage turned his back to you and spoke in a foreign language for a long time. And you sat there. Okay, did you see the two extremes? Yeah, we've all got a background somewhere within those extremes, and we come together and we're told by God to think about them, consider others. Now, how about personalities? We all get different personalities. You show it differently. I tell you, because I get to stand up here and watch sometimes, you all sing differently. Now, I'm not talking about how good you sound, because I can't separate that up here. But I can tell you, you look different when you sing. You ought to look around sometimes. Be surprised what you see. Some folks sing with their eyes closed. They, they evidently know all the words and don't need to watch the PowerPoint. So they close their eyes. Some of you have to keep them wide open the whole time. Some of you move a little bit. Or tap a foot. And some of you, I mean, you must start to everything extra because you don't want to move. You're going to be still. Some of you look, and by the way, all this external stuff doesn't tell me anything about what's in your heart. We'll get there next week. I'm just saying looking, we all got different personalities. Some of you look like you're bored to death when you're singing. Yeah. And some of you, I can see a tear run down your cheek during a song. We're all different. Some of you quietly lift holy hands in reverence and awe while they sing. We all get different personalities. Now, let's add to that this confusion. Number two is each family is different. And when I say family, I mean church or congregation or the Lord's family here at Northside is different from every other church family. We all have our uh, a boundary, a comfort zone, a way that we are used to worshiping. Yeah. When uh, Mark and I went to Venezuela a few years ago to visit Jonathan and the church there in Caracas, I, I was preaching that day, was the plan. And they sang a few songs. And then this guy gets up behind the lectern, and he started talking. Of course, I didn't understand a word. I didn't know what he was saying. But he talked for about 15 minutes, and I thought, well, Jonathan's confused. I guess I was supposed to preach next week, because this guy's preaching. Yeah. And I sat and was quiet and attentive and all that. Well, after about 25 minutes of talking, he kind of wrapped up. I could tell by the tone he was winding her down. And he prayed, and somebody came up and started serving communion. That was the Lord's Supper talk. 25 minutes. Okay? Now, if we'd have been at Northside, you know, after about five or six minutes, 
I'd have been giving him the sign, you know. Yeah, two or three minutes is about what we like around here. Each family is different. That's the way they did things. Um, Audience behavior is different in different churches. Some churches are more vocal. The audience participates a little bit. They say amen. They say that's right. They say preach on. They help the guy up here. (laughs) But some families, their comfort zone is, if anybody says a peep, everybody else is going to look at them. You know, their attitude is, that guy up there is on his own. You know, (laughs) he's going to sink or swim by himself. Families, uh, churches, they self-regulate. You go any place. You visit a social club, you visit a business club, you go to a new job, whatever. You watch for a couple of days, and you can pretty well tell what's acceptable. You can pretty well tell what they are used to and what their comfort zone is and and all of that. So we self-regulate to some extent. Now, I'm not saying any of us right or wrong. I'm just saying it's where we're comfortable. And add this to the mix, and I think this is unfortunate, but it's human. In a place where there are many options, we self-select. We go to a congregation that makes us comfortable. We pick a congregation that has the closest to our style of preaching and our style of singing and our style of this and that. We go where we'll be comfortable. Some people even choose a religion that way. I like this. Everything just kind of suits me. I like it here. So what I'm trying to tell you is we get comfortable within our families and sometimes that causes problems if we get in a different crowd or we get a different collection of folks or we have visitors or something like that. We're not sure what to do. Example, Women Walking with God Conference. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, special announcement. But when the women get together at their conference with 1,300, 1,400 women, there's about 100 congregations of the Lord's Church there represented. There's about 30 denominations represented by different women from different denominations. Now, let me tell you, you see different things. When you've got that kind of collection, a bunch of people from different families get together, you see different things. And uh, a few of them raise their hands while they're singing. That, that's what they're used to. That's what they're comfortable with, where they come from. And some people get upset by that. We talked last week about people who believe that tradition is truth. And some of them will fill out the survey and say, I don't like that hand-raising stuff. You need to stop that. This is the Lord's church. And not very many. But a few people say things like that. Okay? 
they're all anonymous surveys, so you really can't write back and say, well, Paul suggested that we lift holy hands when we pray. But we do what we're comfortable with. We do what we're used to. Okay, now if you got that, that each member is different and each family is different, let me add one thing. This is more of a solution than a factor. Number three, public worship is different than private. I think this would solve a lot of problems if we'd understand this. Public worship is different than private worship. When you're worshiping privately, as long as you do the things that are acceptable to God, because God didn't specify how to do things, he just said, here's what I accept as worship. How is, we, we got freedom in Christ. For instance, if you step out in the backyard after a rainstorm, and there's the most beautiful rainbow you've ever seen, that might inspire you to worship. Uh, if it inspires you to worship, you can do it how you want. You can raise your hands. You can sing how great thou art. You can sing how great thou art 20 times. You can sing it as soft or as loud as you want. It's up to you. Okay? Because there's no them to worry about. You understand? If you get an email that says Josh Oakley received a perfect transplant heart at the hour when it was most needed, and that inspires you to worship, you can do that any way you want. You can cry. You can shout. You can fall on your knees. You can pray to Jehovah Jireh. You could say you are the God of Abraham and Isaac, and you did it again. You did it again right when it was needed. See, you can do that any way you want. You can run in circles, singing our God is an awesome God for a half hour if you want to. You can do any of that. You can sing it. You know, so off-key at the top of your lungs. It doesn't matter because there's no them to worry about in private worship. But when you're here, then there's them to consider. Okay? This is the answer to a lot of worship wars, we call them sometimes, we argue about what kind of music and what kind of this and how to do this and what's right and what's wrong. God didn't specify how on hardly anything. He just told us a couple of things that he accepts and he expects in worship. And know how about it. Now, in the Old Testament, he did. Remember? He gave them a list of very detailed rules. I mean, he gave them rules on down to what the, the priest's underwear was supposed to be like. There's some details now, folks. That's what he told them. Here's how you worship me. But in the New Testament, we got freedom in Christ. In private worship, all we have to do is make sure we're worshiping him. And you can do what your preference is, how you do that. But in public worship, we got to worship him and them. 
And both of them, uh, not worship them, excuse me, consider them. Worship with them. Okay? i got to consider how I build you up, not how I feel good about things. And that's the attitude we've all got to have. Our attitude in public worship ought to be, no matter how gifted we are, no matter what our likes are, no matter what our background is, our attitude ought to be, I don't want to ever be a distraction to my family. In fact, over in Timothy and Titus, one of them, Paul tells the young preacher, he says, women should dress modestly in the worship assembly. And the reason is, if you get down to the root of it, is so they won't distract anybody. So they won't take anybody's mind off of worship. Our attitude ought to be, may I never be so self-centered that I push my preference, that I push what I like in the family. Okay? That'd solve a lot of things if we understood that. Number four, let's close. We encourage each other when we come to assemble together. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Here's a verse that's misused quite often to prove people, you've got to go to church. Not at all what this verse says. This verse says, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says we ought to think of ways to encourage each other and build each other up when we come together. Don't stop coming together because that's where you encourage others. Okay? Now, on this one, let me just point out one thing. I'm going to be very frank with the family here. You can't encourage each other unless you're here. Okay? Seems kind of simple, doesn't it? But we don't think of that sometimes. I think maybe we used to think about it a little bit more. I don't know. If this is an average crowd this morning, I'll give you some inside numbers here. If this is an average crowd this morning, this is 75% of all Northsiders. 25% of the family is not here. You say, well, there's some shut-ins. No, I took them out. You say, well, there's some people that never come. No, I took them out. I I took all of that out except people that you see regularly. See them once a month at least. 75% of that group is here this morning. Now, of the 25% that's somewhere else, I know a few percent of them are sick, a few percent are out of town, a few percent something else happened. But all the rest, all the rest decided that it is not worth their time to get out this morning and come be with the family. Hebrews 10.24 says, the assembly is to encourage each other. We've somehow in this me, my, I, self society evaluated differently. We think, well, I don't feel like it this Sunday. 
I'm a little tired, or the kids were busy all weekend, and oh, let's not get them ready. And, you know, there's some other things to do today, and it's pretty outside, and all that. Well, yeah, I don't feel like going today. Let me reinforce the assembly of the saints is not about you, it's about Him. And we learn today it's about them. Can you imagine if we had the other 25% here? The encouragement that would be to everybody, to every teacher, to every preacher, to everyone hearing the singing, to everything. That's part of this assembly. That's why we have it, to encourage each other. All right, we still don't know a whole lot about worship, do we? We know we're supposed to ascribe to the Lord. It is about Him, and it's about them. We learned that today. Next week, we're going to look at where God said, I hate your worship. How would you like to receive that message? He said, I hate your worship. I can't stand it. Well, we're going to look at that example, see why it says that in Amos. We're going to learn that it is not just a right that we do when we come together. It uh, involves the heart. So we're going to study that next week. All right, the lesson is yours. If you're here this morning and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we'd hope you do that now. If you have some other public need, we'd expect you to come. Let's stand and sing.